All right. Well, welcome, guys. Um, we are going to be starting a brand new series today, um, looking at what we basically just described as kind of our, our vision and our values as a church community. It's something that we do every year. It's a way of kind of uh, recentering ourselves upon the mission and the vision that we sense that God's calling us to as a unique you know, community of God's people here on the Central Coast. Um, again, I say this often, but I also mean it. Uh, thanks for being here this morning. There's a lot of great churches in San Luis Obispo, and I'll just say this to you, especially if you're a student or you're kind of new here in town. Um, my encouragement to you would be to don't be afraid to check out other uh, communities. Find something that is going to feed you and a place where you can get uh, connected and loved and be a part of the whole community. Um, but at the same time, my encouragement to you would be to not just simply be a connoisseur of churches. Uh, don't be someone that just simply goes around and uh, uh, critically uh, tastes uh, the goods, but in, give yourself to it. Become not just a consumer, but someone that is able to jump in and be a contributor of a church community. Um, there is a lot to be learned and grown into if you are a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So what we're going to be doing for the next two weeks is kind of learning a little bit about who we are as a church uh, community and some of the ways in which uh, we're just sensing God is inviting us to step into what God has in store for us. So um, that being said, we will be looking at the next two weeks, really this bigger picture of what we are really all about. It's really simply three things. Number one, love God. Number two, love others. Number three, do good. And I want to talk a little bit about today just the idea of loving God. So why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. I'm going to read this little segment of Scripture. Then I'm going to pray. And then you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. And then we'll begin to jump in. If you guys don't have Bibles, I think we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. You're more than welcome to get one. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you guys. Go ahead and keep it. Take it home with you. Use it or give it away, whatever you feel most comfortable with. So First John chapter 4, verse 10 through 12 says this, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray and then we can have a seat. God, thank you for uh, your word that instructs and guides us that Lord, thank you that as we stand, sit, occupy space here in 2021, uh, we're not left alone without any form of direction or instruction. God, we are not sitting here, standing here, occupying space here, trying to simply create a future for ourselves. We thank you, God, that we can receive a future based upon what has been spoken in the past. So, Lord, we ask you right now that you would instruct and reshape and reform our hearts so that we could step into and live into all that you have for us. God, we truly believe that your words are the words of life. So, thank you, God, for what you've spoken. I pray that you would give us Insight to follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? And uh, I want to talk a little bit about just the subject of what it means to love God. But before we do that, I think it's important for us to really step back a little bit from just the idea, or if you think of it as a command, to love God. And, and really ask a bigger question. How is it that we are to love God? Like what motivates our love for God? And this is really essential because if we stop right here and just simply threw out kind of this command... Um, or this imperative, love God, 
Um, what that would ultimately create is each one of us on independent levels trying to figure out what that means for us to love God. And some of us are going to think we're doing really well and we're going to look down upon with disdain those that aren't doing it as well. Some of us are going to feel really full of condemnation because we're going to feel like we're not doing it well. And, uh, or we're just going to try to script our own pathway forward. And I think all of those three lead to dead ends at some point. Um, and what I would hope to kind of recast for us today is just a vision as to how do we shape our understanding of love for God. And I think John tells us pretty clearly that it, first of all, begins with the fact that actually it's not about our love for God. It's about God's love for us. So what I'm going to do right now is I want to just step back a little bit from the text and really try to understand what it means when we talk about God's love for us. Because as we begin to discover and live into and uh, unpack just the reality of God's love for us, what that ultimately should do is it should reshape our hearts, our affections, our loves to become open and aware of God's love for us. And then naturally there'll be a reaction to God's love. And that reaction, we'll we'll call that, let's just call that love for God. (laughs) Love for God, in other words, will naturally flow out of uh, complete awareness of God's love for us. Um, to do that, what I want to do is rather than me just simply giving you my opinions upon God's love, I want to just read a story that Jesus himself gives us about God's love. It's actually found in the book of Luke chapter 20, or chapter 15, verse 20. Um, it's a story that most of us are probably familiar with. It's called the story or the story of the prodigal son. There's actually three characters that we're going to look at that are really essential to the story. There's actually two movements. If you think of it like a play, there's two movements, three main characters that are really essential to this whole story. Um, I'm going to pick it up kind of like later, later on into the story. Um, if you're familiar with the story, there is like a, a younger son. He kind of ends up squandering everything. We're going to pick up from his uh, re-entry into the story, and then we'll take a look at the older son, and then we'll take a look at the father, and we'll just make some comments upon this, and then we'll kind of uh, finish up with some final thoughts, and basically we'll call that a, a morning. Um, but what I want to do right now is I'm going to pick it up at verse 20, and we'll begin to just uh, look at this story about the younger son, older son, and then the father. It says this in verse 20, and he arose, it's a younger son, and he came to his father, But while he was still yet far away off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son then said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, and yet now he's found. And they began to celebrate. So imagine big party going on right now in dad's house. Verse 25. Now the older brother, this is scene two. The older brother, I would imagine if I was kind of doing the musical score for this, at this point, uh, you begin to enter into some um, um, minor notes, right? Some heavy sounding minor notes are going to begin to play in the background of the musical score. It says, now the older son was in the field, and he, and he came and he drew near to the house, and he heard the music, the dancing and the celebrating and the partying in verse 26, and he called to one of the servants, and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he... The older son was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and he entreated him. 
And he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you've always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. So these three characters are really essential. And this whole point of this parable is actually to tell us the story of God's love. Um, if you haven't figured the big E on the I chart yet, the, the father obviously represents the father of God, Father God. And that Jesus is telling the story. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, we begin to learn something about that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But I want to look at each of the characters in this story, just kind of make a real brief comment, and then we'll move on to the very next thing. I want to first of all take a look at the younger son. Um, we're described that he obviously, uh, he was lost. But he was lost in a unique way by being far from the father's house. You know, his, his story is pretty obvious. In fact, most of the time when people talk about the parable of the prodigal son, they tend to focus on, on this guy, you know, the really bad guy, the one that's like out doing drugs and pimping and prostituting and doing all sorts of horrible, uh, horrible things that you can imagine. They're just straight up immoral, right? The, the, the big reality, like he's, he's the sinner. He's the sinner. He's messed up. He's lost. But that's kind of the strange punchline of the whole story is both sons are lost. One of the sons is lost, this guy, uh, by doing flagrant abuses against the father's love. The other son is lost in a unique way, which we'll look at in just a moment. Um, Henry Allen, if you are familiar with him, he wrote a book on the prodigal son, which I don't necessarily always agree with everything that he wrote, but this particular book, this writing, is if you've never read this book, I would highly recommend going out, figuring out right now on Amazon, downloading on your Kindle, whatever. Get this book, listen to it, read it, Whatever, it's absolutely phenomenal. I think it's probably one of the best books on the subject matter of the parable of the prodigal son. And he has to say this about the younger son. He describes his actions as being that of addiction. Like addiction, being driven away. What's an addiction? It's being enticed by something that's beyond you and following out after it. Following it to its ultimate end. And most of the things that we follow to its ultimate end lead to destruction or brokenness. That's what an addiction is. Uh, We tend to think of addiction in nothing more than in terms of like... You know, drugs or alcohol abuse or whatever, or sex addictions or whatnot. Um, but, you know, addictions can, can even be this, right? This thing right here. Um, screen addictions, uh, video game addictions, you know, sex addictions, whatever. I mean, you think about all forms of ways. But he describes the son, younger son's actions like this. He says, addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as keys to self-fulfillment, accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration. We call this being an influencer. Lavish consumption of good, of, of food and drink, uh, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. The addicted life can aptly be designated a life lived in a distant country. It is from there that our cry for deliverance rises up. And we see with this Youngest son, he is literally driven away by his craving or lust or longing for all of these other things. And it leads him away uh, physically, tangibly to a distant country. And it's from there the story just gets its beauty, right? He comes to himself. He ends up coming back to the father, and the story makes its shape. 
Um, less known to the story is the older son, which is what I want to look at right now. Um, he is lost, however, while living in the home. He's near the father and totally lost. Listen to how Henry Nouwen describes it in this context. He says, the more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems far more easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can easily uh, be distinguished and dealt with rationally. It is far more pernicious. Something that has attached itself to the underside of my virtue isn't a good and obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hard-working, self-sacrificing. And then he goes on to say, just when I do my utmost to accomplish a task well, I find myself questioning why others do not give themselves as I do. Just when I think I'm capable of overcoming my temptations, I feel deep envy towards those who give into theirs. It seems that whatever my virtuous self is, there's also the resentful complainer. This is the son who has everything. He's living at home. He's been faithful to his father. He's done everything dad has asked him to do. And yet, the moment the father's love and acceptance and forgiveness and grace, if you would, gets lavished upon the bad son, this deep anger, resentment, disdain rises up in the older son's heart. He's far from God. He's equally far from God, I should add. And this is the story that Jesus is telling about the father's love. And what I want to focus on now is is the the movement of the father, because I think really the hero of the story here is, is neither son, but it's the father. And the lavish love that the father showers upon both sons. One son receives it. The other son, the way the story ends, is with nothing more than a big question mark. Did he really receive it? Did he really get it? Jury's out. Now, again, I don't know how you relate to this. And, again, if you just pause and think about this, some here might right now way more relate with the younger son. You have been abstract in your ways of taking what the Father's given you, and you've just you've uh, squandered it. You have gone far from God by leaving the household of God and wandering far and doing things that you know you probably shouldn't be doing and living in a deep immorality and whatnot. All these things that oftentimes just come to define you know, a, a great testimony of somebody who comes to know Jesus. Um, that might be the one that you identify with. Others of you, you might actually more identify with the older son where you have never done anything horribly, quote-unquote, wrong. You've been, maybe even on the other hand, pretty faithful throughout your life. You've been in church. You've maybe even read your Bible on a regular basis. You've helped in church. You've served in churches. You've not really gone too far out beyond that realm. And yet, deep inside your heart is this, like, anger, resentment, self-righteousness. But then the third character of the story here is really important because this ties everything together with regard to our, our, our construct of, of love. And it's the father. And one of the things I think, one of the things I think you can think 
with regard to this parable is that this parable in some ways I think is a pulling back the veil of what things there are in the universe and basically shows us what is God the Father's big overarching drive. In other words, what does God truly want? I think the big answer to this question is he, he wants both sons. If I can put it into the more now in here, he wants you. He wants you. Whether you represent the younger son or the older, he wants you. Just pause. Think about that. I don't know how you think about religion or Christianity or Jesus or how you've come to have your mindset shaped about this or how you even think about church, religion, Christianity, what we do here on a Sunday morning. You might even look at it just kind of being like, it's all irrelevant. Can't, you can't even make sense. If someone were to ask you, why do you even go to church? And if your answer is like, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know why I go. Honestly, I think the only solution for you, the only solution for you is to recalibrate your heart around this red-hot, fiery love of God. He wants you. He loves you. And I think to the degree that you either get that, grasp it, let it apprehend you, it will shape you, or if you resent it or resist it or push it off or marginalize yourself from it, then you will just continue to remain in a state of alienation on the margins, on the outside, in a distant country, looking in from the outside and wondering, what's all the celebration going on inside? And it'll be something of an abstraction to you rather than reality. And this is what I think the Father wants for us to understand. And I love this passage in First John that we just read, that this is love. This is love. So the big question is, what is love? John tells us this is love. That he loved us, and he sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is just a big word that basically means God absorbs all that was, that is prone towards brokenness or destruction, ruin, sinfulness. He absorbs it. He takes it on himself. In other words, he brings upon himself the shame. And this becomes really clear in the story. So, for example, uh, the father in the story of the prodigal son, uh, how is he depicted? And this is where it gets really unique, because... Jesus, in telling the story, he knows exactly what he's doing. But the way he describes the father in the story is um, running. <laughs> he's running to the sun. He's running to the sun. Now, again, if you know anything about ancient you know, Middle Eastern culture, the, the father, the patriarch of the family, he's filled with dignity. And, and men back then, they, they wore dresses. I mean, I don't know how to say it. The patriarch manliness, wore dresses, right? These big, long robes and gowns. If you were to run and you don't bring your dress up, you trip. So I'm told. So I'm told. But the way that you run is you bring the dress up, and as you run, your big, nasty, hairy, white legs are being shown. In other words, it's very undignifiable. Father doesn't care. He just wants to be with his son. As soon as the sun enters back into the village, rumors begin to spread. Oh my gosh, that's the guy that brought shame upon the dad. He's back. Shameful human being at all. He's back in town. And it's almost as if the father now, because he's running out to the sun, he's becoming part of the rumor mill now too. 
The father, he's embracing him. He's accepting him back. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. The son is a horrible human being, and he brought horrible indignity upon the family. And as the father says, all that shame that was brought about by my son, bring it on me. I'll take it. Bring me into your rumor mills. That's fine. All I care about is my son was once lost. Now he's back. That's the love of God. That's what propitiation means. Absorbing. The guilt, the shame, the brokenness, the evil. Absorbing it. Whatever shame, guilt, whatever it is that we have contributed to the the whole mess of this world, which is, to the degree of our self-awareness of it, is a lot. (laughs) And yet, God takes it upon himself. And this is why John would say, this is love, that he sent his son to be the propitiation of all of our sins, to carry those things for us. This is the love of God. When we talk about this love that we are wanting to embody as a church community, we're, we're not talking about it in an abstract sense of just like, hey, go, here's a duty, go figure out and do it. First of all, talking about the incredibly extravagant love of God that's been shown to us, and then our natural reaction to that love, which is to just say, I want to respond and reply from this perspective of God loving me to responding back to him. There's an author by the name of Pete Scazzaro. He has written a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Emotionally Healthy Church, Emotionally Healthy Christian, basically. He's just got this whole series of literature. Again, if you want a good book to read, I cannot more highly recommend anything by Pete Scazzaro. He has this little segment in there where he talks about using God to run from God. Now, I think a lot of ways this is sort of a classic description of the first or the second son, uh, or I should say the firstborn son, second son in the story. Uh, this idea of using God to run from God. And I would even put it in this context. This is how not to love God. So Pete Scazzaro would say this, using God to run from God is when I create a great deal of God activity to ignore difficult areas in my life God wants to change. Some examples might be, he goes through number one, when I do God's work to satisfy me, not him. When I do God's work to satisfy me, not him. That's very possible to be about running from God. Like, I mean, I I want you to just now pause and think about this, especially if you would more relate to the older son, meaning you have never done anything horribly wrong, yet at the same time, just I'm, I'm encouraging you to think about have there been moments in your life where you have done God's work more as a way of satisfying yourself than just pleasing the heart of the one who loves you? It's really easy to do this. And what Peace Cassara describes is this is like actually hiding from God by doing God's stuff. And think about how crazy that is. But it's real. Then he goes on to say, secondly, when I do things in the name, in his name, that he never asked me to do, we would maybe call this busyness, extreme busyness. I think, honestly, I think a lot of ways, this is where we're at as a culture. We're just so busy. And even good people who claim to love Jesus, we're just so busy. But the question is, is, is much of our busyness just being busy doing stuff that God never even asked us to do? It's just stuff that we feel that we brought upon ourselves, and we kind of baptize it in Christian terminology. We're like, I got to do this. I gotta, and yet we're just running around frantically in this frenetic movement of just anxiety in our souls 
And yet we say, oh, God did call me to this. But did he really call you to this? Or is this just us being about busy God activity is the way Skazara describes it. And then thirdly, when my prayers are really about God doing my will and not my surrendering to his. In other words, how oftentimes can we just be guilty praying, God, do what I want to do, as opposed to humbly coming to God and say, God, what, what do you want me to do? What's in your heart? What's on your mind? What's part of your agenda that I want to be a part of, that you, by your grace, can bring me into so that I can step into what it is that you're about in this world? The idea of just simply using God, running from God by using God, is something I think we all can, at some point, be guilty of. So what I want to do in closing, I want for us just to think about what are some calls to action, or what are some postures? And I'm going to give you three postures I think we could begin to adopt. And these are things I'm just going to invite you to maybe step back, maybe write these things down, maybe take a photograph of this, and just pray through them. Ask God what he would have for you. Um, and just think about these things. Number one is to take inventory of what you love and then reprioritize your loves around God. Uh, I'm going to read a quote in just a moment here by a guy named James K.A. Smith. But again, there's another really important book that I would highly recommend. It's called You Are What You Love. And in it, he basically creates this idea or kind of creates this, this paradigm that he says, ultimately, what we do in the Practices that we build in our lives are oftentimes based around those things that we love. What is it that you love? What are the things that you love most? Whatever it is that you love most will ultimately begin to come out by way of how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your energy. It will just ultimately come out. So the big question is, is what is it that you love? What is it that you love? I remember years ago talking with a guy. And he had a porn addiction, and he was describing how in his part of his quest or his uh, freedom or deliverance from it was he began to realize the, the real issue that he had was that he loved the naked human body of a female more than he loved Jesus. That was revelation for him. The moment that struck him, oh my gosh, I love a naked human body more than I love Jesus. He was able to then repent from that. And then reorient his life around this God figure that we see portrayed through the prodigal son. And then that begins to reorient, reshape how he spends his time, how he spends his money, how he spends his thoughts, how he spends his energy. Everything in our lives is going to, from top down, begin to be shaped by what we love. So again, my first question for you, or first consideration for you to consider is to take inventory. What are the things in what in way of priority that you love most of all with throughout your life? Secondly, manage distractions. I think it's an understatement to say that we live in a, in a distracted culture and society, right? Everything around us in so many ways, it just seems to be wired and geared towards our own distractedness. But I would also add that this is part of a problem. We easily get distracted. I think all of us, we find ourselves faced with distractions. Some of these things we just can't, you know, control. They are just part of the landscape. We enter into them. I mean, even the very fact, like if you're hanging out with a group of friends and someone asks a question and all of a sudden someone whips out their phones, begins to do a Google search, and before you know it, you like realize, oh my gosh, I got three notifications. I'm going to check it out. Before you know it, even while you're sitting present with your handful of friends, you've just got lost in your phone. And you just went down the rabbit trail. 
And it just happened like that. You didn't even think about it. You did not cognitively consider, like, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail. It just happened. It's called distraction. My encouragement to us as a community is to really think about what are those things that easily distract us. If there's a possibility for us to mitigate some of those distractions, my suggestion to you is, are there non-essential notifications that can be turned off, as I've written up here, uh, that which would otherwise be part of our training, us to be narcissists, anxious, frustrated, jealous? I mean, think about this. What types of notifications? I mean, again, I can't tell you what to do, but my suggestion would be, maybe consider turning off all, all, all notifications that you don't need. Do you really need every single notification of every like that comes in through your social media? Don't think you do. There's no judgment if you have that, but my point is that what type of a person is that shaping you to be? Do you really need every news article popping up on your screen? Do you really need that? Or is that actually training you every time that pops up? Oh, my gosh, Trump did this or Biden did that. Oh, my gosh. No, you're like filled with rage. You've just trained yourself to become filled with rage. You know that. You allowed that to happen. It's a liturgy. It's a religious activity. That's actually training you to become somebody that I don't think is really what we want to become. And part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is we want to become like him, filled with compassion, filled with love, filled with kindness, truth. And lastly, I want for us to think about this idea of being present, being present, first of all, with God, being present with God, showing up. And I don't necessarily mean coming to church, though I I will talk about that in two seconds. But I mean just showing up daily, thinking about rhythms in your life daily whereby you bring you, you show up. You know that God's there, but you show up even though it, you might not even necessarily be receiving much from your own experience with that. It's just the matter of showing up, saying, God, you are here. You love me. You want to reveal yourself. We know based upon the story and the testimony of scriptures and thousands and thousands and thousands of followers of Jesus over the past 2000 years that God is good and he's full of love. My encouragement to us is to just show up, to be present in those spaces where God invites us to be with him. And again, if that looks like you're starting out your very first part of your morning, avoiding your phone, don't go down that rabbit trail, just picking up your Bible, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, maybe maybe, maybe putting on the front you know, cover of your phone so you're not having to like go through 16 layers of apps in order to get to that one phone. Before you get to it, you've already like scanned through the news headlines, all the social media headlines, all the YouTube videos that are latest that just came into your feed. And then you get to the Bible after an hour and a half. And by then you're an absolute anxious mess filled with rage and anger. Maybe there's a different way to start the day out that just says the first few moments of my waking is just to take a deep breath and say, God, thank you for another day. Thank you for allowing me to live through another night. What is it that you have for me today? That's being present. 
beginning to just open up in reading scripture. And again, I've mentioned this before, but maybe a couple practices for you guys to consider. Number one is just reading daily the Bible every single day, finding a good Bible app. I use the Dwell app. I also use the YouVersion app. Both of those are highly recommended. I also use another app that's called uh, Lectio 360 or 365 or something like that. You know, it's basically just a prayer app every single day. That's part of my normal morning routine of just reading the scripture, bringing in the story of the scripture over and over and over again, and then spending some time just praying. And the fact of the matter is, this is not going to make me perfect. (laughs) I mean, look, by nine o'clock, I can still have already lost my temper. I could have already gotten anxious. I could have already gotten enraged by something. But at least I do so in the context of recognizing the fact that I am loved by my father. And he has nothing but the best intentions for me. The big thing I want you to get from all of this is God's posture towards you is one of absolute, complete acceptance and love. I don't know how you think about God, but I think to the degree that we understand his deep love for us, then it begins to reshape our response and love for him. James K.I. Smith said this in summary. I'm going to read this little quote and we're done. This is in his book, You Are What You Love. I have no idea how to even pronounce that name, so I'm not going to name it. I'm just going to say that guy captures as well, whatever his name is. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood. Don't assign them tasks and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Guys, I don't know if you get this, but this is what I want to cast as a vision for you. We can talk about building a church. We can talk about loving Jesus, loving others, doing good. We can talk about all of it. I think it's all of it is good. Or I think most importantly, we can say, guys, we have an immense love of God that God is inviting us to step into, to be a part of, to be a community that is radically transformed and shaped by that love. And I think to the degree that we sense this, the phrases that just keep coming to my mind are from the philosophers, the good, the beautiful, and the true. The good, the beautiful, and the true. This is what the gospel is all about. It is truly good. I've said this before, that the gospel, the love of God, is not just simply functional. It's utterly beautiful. And I think to the degree that we either step back and realize the immensity of the beauty of the love of God, to the degree we see that, then we will step in and say, I want in. I want part of that. And where does that beauty show up? Oh, then those answers begin to flow. The beauty shows up amidst broken people like you and I. But to the degree that we are close to that love of God, or we don't see that love of God, or we're not receiving that love of God, then to us, realistically, going to church is just an activity. It's just a duty that we end up doing. There's no functional benefit whatsoever to us. And therefore, we begin to make decisions based upon that. It's not working for me. It's not happening for me. I'm not meeting anybody. In other words, there's no utilitarian reason for me to actually engage. But to the degree I see the beauty of Jesus then that leaves me on this quest, this venture, to say I want to explore it in all of its facets, in all of its areas where it just looks like pure brokenness and nastiness and disgust. Yet these are the places where Jesus shows up and does good and creates beauty. This is the image I want for us to catch, is this love of God. 
to the degree that we see this, it reshapes our desire to either step in and say, I want to love him back in return. And I want to love all that he loves. What does he love? He loves you. He loves this thing called the church. As dysfunctional, as broken, as messed up as it may be. He loves showing up amidst broken people. That's why we want to show up. Because we want to be where he is at. We want to partake in what he is recreating. So, I'm done. We are going to now turn to the table and partake of the bread and the cup. And I'm going to invite you all to stand as we consider right now as we move into this last little, and I would even say the most important part of our entire gathering here, as we remember the elements that he gives to us. Christianity has a lot of symbols in it. One of the most important symbols is the table. And the question is, why do we do this every single week? Simple reason. We're prone to forget. (laughs) It's as simple as that. We're prone to forget. And we need regular, consistent reminders of his love. And that's why we do this. It's a way of reminding us week after week. And I would even add, it's, it's part of a weekly cadence training ourselves to always remember his love for us. So as we sing, uh, I'll invite you to come to the front. You can either in the front or in the back. We have little tables in the back. Uh, Feel free to grab the cup, and then we will partake together, and we will call it a day. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then we will sing and respond. Jesus, thank you for your great love. And God, in reply, in response to you, we just... We want to take the elements that remind us of that deep love that you have for us to engage in all of the things that you call us to engage in. And at the same time, Lord, to repent from things that we have maybe held on to or things that we have loved in greater priority over you. We lay those down before you. We confess those things before you, knowing full well that we will be fully, completely loved and accepted because you have taken upon yourselves our shame, our guilt, our brokenness. So let's respond.